Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so uh, I was just looking at some uh, numbers, uh, generic poll numbers and presidential approval poll numbers uh, because that poll came out yesterday from Quinnipiac, which is the harshest of all pollsters toward Biden. It seems to have a, uh, a, a significant, however their, however their, whatever their methodology is or whatever, they come up with um, the results that are the worst for Biden. And today they have the result that is the worst for Biden in the Biden presidency with a 33% approval rating, uh, which is not tracking with other polls. It needs to be said, you know, people who like are, are, are thrilled to hear this news should, should keep their powder dry because most other polls have him closer to 40, which is terrible, but uh, nonetheless is not 33, which is, you know. The demographic uh, breakdowns here are really suspect. Like they are okay. His, his, among Hispanics, is at twenty six percent approval. Yeah. Well, among we should voters, we should also thirty four twenty one percent. I don't believe that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we, you can also say that yeah. and still vote for the guy too. So right. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, but so the these numbers are terrible. But so I decided to look at um, uh, the uh, poll results on this date in 2022 the that is the poll of polls the real clear politics average aggregation of polls and then averaging of them so uh on this date in 2018 remember the result of the 2018 midterms was a blowout for democrats winning 40 uh, house seats uh donald trump's approval rating on April 14th, 2018, was 42.8%. Joe Biden's approval rating in the poll of polls today, April 14th, 2022, 40.6%. So he is appreciably lower than Trump. And uh, when you aggregate polls, you there is no such thing as a margin of error. Uh, for complicated statistical reasons. The point here is that at the very least, at the very least, Trump, uh, Biden is in Trump territory in terms of approval or worse and likely worse uh, uh, in April of 2018. And of course, the rest of 2018 uh, didn't go so badly for Trump. Economy continued to improve, tax cuts were passed and started to pass through uh, job growth. Uh, job growth was significant. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad year. It wasn't 2017, which was, which was catastrophic for Trump. And yet it would appear based on what happened in November of 2018, that this number, this 42.8% number meant that the results of November were baked in the cake. Um, that, uh, we were headed that the Republicans were headed uh, down, you know, off a cliff, and nothing that happened between April and November uh, ended the end, you know, ended that relentless drive uh, off the cliff that uh, that lost them the House. So here's Biden. It's uh, April fourteenth, twenty twenty-two. He's already uh, lower in the poll average than than Biden in catastrophic territory of forty percent approval. And um, looking on the horizon, uh, there are a couple of happy talk stories today that try to let you know that maybe things are going to get better for Biden uh, in the short term as he is going around the country praising his own efforts to restore the supply chain. That apparently is what he's going to do in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina sometime today or tomorrow. Then he's, we already talked about the other day about going to Iowa to talk up his uh, ethanol nonsense. Um, 
and and other things. And so there's an AP story in which uh, in which the White House uh, says, you know, they're going to go around and tell people the story of how Joe Biden is working relentlessly to help and fix things and get the country on the right track. And can, can I just add, we all know how well Joe Biden tells a story like this, the, the, the whole the whole conceit of this, this idea that he's like, first of all, the way that Saki uh, described it to the press, uh, I think it was yesterday. She's like, you know, we just everybody's really distracted by Ukraine. And this is this is why Biden is his numbers are so bad. So we're going to go out there and tell our story. He's got this this amazingly this this just you know, whirlwind of a tour. He's going to two places in one week. That is not a whirlwind tour for Biden and his energy level. It might be, that might be seen as a whirlwind. He doesn't actually go around and do that much. He sends Kamala Harris out uh, a lot more than he himself goes. That's fine. But this idea that the real problem is that Americans are just distracted. uh, The real reason they're not embracing Biden's presidency and his agenda is that they're now distracted by the Ukraine war. There's always an excuse. There's always some excuse that's an external factor that has nothing to do with the incompetence of this administration in developing, pursuing, and achieving its policy goals. It just They just pivot to, it must be Ukraine, and it was this, that it was that. It's always something. Can we talk about presidential travel a little bit? Because presidential travel is not travel as we understand travel to be as ordinary people. Steps out of the Oval Office, he walks about 200 feet to the helicopter, he gets on the helicopter, the helicopter lands at Andrews, He gets off the helicopter. He walks onto Air Force One. He sits down in the most luxuriously appointed private cabin uh, on the planet with with any and everything he could possibly want, including a bed and a this and a that. He lands somewhere. He gets off the plane. He gets into a limo. He's driven somewhere. He gets out of where he is driven. He goes up on stage. He gives a speech. There's a lot of applause. He shakes a couple of hands. He goes back out following the secret service he gets back in the limo he drives the plane he gets on the plane he gets back to andrews he gets on the helicopter he gets into the house elapsed time bupkis a stress level zero this is not like oh my god i gotta get to the airport i gotta go through security i gotta wait for an hour and maybe we'll be waiting on the tarmac and then we get off we have to wait for our bags and we have to go to the rental car like this is nothing. It is nothing for a president to travel. Nothing. So the idea that they're like, oh, he's going around the country to tell his story. I mean, give me a break. Like he could do this five days a week. You know, as as, as Christine, as you said on our on our on our group chat, like, you know, he goes to Delaware four days a week. He could he could be flying out, you know, he could take take a couple hours and go to Kentucky and go to, you know, I don't know. South Carolina, he could go to Georgia, he could go to Maryland, it doesn't matter. You know, it's this is not this is not grueling even for uh, a man of his um admittedly advanced years. Um whenever they start saying you need to tell your story better, that's when it is time to either buy the life insurance or to sell your holdings because um uh, and when Hillary Clinton says you just need to tell your story better, like then maybe really it is time to start making an appointment at the glue factory. Because if Hillary Clinton is saying you just don't know how to tell your story, uh, in some ways, the single least successful political candidate uh, in our lifetimes, if you think about it, uh, and she's criticizing the way you get your message out. Oh, boy. But this is the problem with, uh, I mean, this is why Americans often like outsiders for president, right? Both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden already have set stories. And the American people know those stories. And the American people don't always like the story that they have heard from these politicians over many, many decades of experience. And, you know, Biden's whole, Biden was able in a kind of remarkable twist to change the story because of who he was running against. And that was Donald Trump. To be able to just say, you know me, I'm the average Joe. I'm the guy who's just going to be calm and competent. He's not been calm. He's been quite emotional, actually, in a lot of his responses to major emergencies. And he's not been competent. He just simply can't be described as competent if you judge him by his own, uh, the the things he outlined as wanting to, to get control of. He hasn't met his own goals. So that the whole like, oh, it's really the narrative. I mean, for Hillary, she could point to, oh, it was you know Russian disinformation. It was misogyny. Biden doesn't really have that excuse. So I mean, we I, know. Yeah. 
We know the story of his presidency so far. This, the, the, the story is he he um, had wild ambitions about a mandate that he didn't have to to implement uh, build back better and and uh, he failed catastrophically and uh, his his the the, the Afghanistan withdrawal was was disastrous and he covered it up um, and uh, he was dead wrong about uh, inflation and its transitory nature. Um, that's the story the, and COVID. Go, going around, you know, piece COVID, by yeah. piece and pulling a stunt here and pulling a stunt there and pulling that does not a story make. That's not a narrative at all. So they're, they're, they're actually mistaking. Um, what it means to shape a narrative here. Noah, let me, let me, let me, let me put it this way. So according to the AP uh, in a story called Thinking Small, Biden scrounges for ways to break through by, uh, by Chris McGarrigan and Zeke Miller. Um, <clears throat> six months out from the midterm elections, Biden's team is betting that smaller discrete announcements can break through to voters better than talk of transformational plans that are so far only aspirational. So, for example, last week that meant aides positioning big rigs outside the White House so Biden could talk about efforts to get more truck drivers on the road. Um, not many people in the country follow politics more granularly than I do. You missed that. Uh, <laughs> if you, I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, didn't know that there were, first of all, where on earth would the big rigs be? Like a half a mile right, from the right White House? Of, no, I saw it right in front of, yeah, right in front of, I don't know the lawn, but it was right See, in front I of knew, See, I knew that you the would, stairs go down. Yeah, because you is, are you are yeah the portico. Yeah, the, 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 this is you are even more granularly following politics than I am. So I thought if I didn't know you missed did, it. but but here's my here's my point, which is I am in the top two or one or half a percent of people who know what's going on on an hour to hour basis in American politics, and a I didn't know that happened. Yeah. So Mazel Tov to the White House for a brilliant advanced job on making sure that Americans knew that there were big rigs outside the White House to talk about how he was going to help the supply chain or whatever the hell it was. And B, are you kidding me? I mean, here's the thing. So according to this piece, like what they want to do is assure people on kitchen table issues. Saying to people, you know what? We have a policy that is going to make it possible for truck drivers to to get extra this so that they can go do that in order to deliver something over here the kitchen table issue is not something you can be talked into or out of a kitchen table issue as as it is as the term is you're sitting at your kitchen table with your receipts or with your bills that you have to pay and you're like how am i going to pay these bills and saying Oh man, there were a lot of trucks in front of the White House. I guess I don't need to worry about my, you know, MasterCard bill this month at my 22% interest rate because they really have it well in hand. This is where the cluelessness of our political class, and this happens all the time. So it's not specific to Biden or Democrats or anything like that. The cluelessness of saying we're going to do something symbolic to comfort people who have actual practical issues on a day-to-day -day basis and say, no, no, don't worry. We have it in hand. Look, there's a truck. Look, truck. It's like saying, look, hey, squirrel. You know, um, this is this is uh, a, but they think it works. I mean, they don't think it works. They think you buy it. They think you'll accept that as, you know, a, a strategy, a rationale that might pull us out of this tailspin. Um, it, and if that's what they did from day one, small, um, targeted, uh, demonstratively effective, albeit in, in a micro scale, uh, measures without spending a lot of time talking, kind of a Coolidge presence, then yeah, cumulative effect would be one of projecting competence. But the Biden administration has spent its entire, uh, the entire time without, with the exception of COVID, um, where the administration tried very hard to under promise and over deliver and failed on both both accounts. Um, they've been talking down the big stuff they did achieve because it wasn't big enough. 
the uh, February uh, COVID aid package was the largest single stimulus effort in American history. Put more money into your wallets than any single piece of legislation ever has. And the effects have been rather disastrous. Um, likewise, the infrastructure bill is the biggest infrastructure bill ever, but it wasn't big enough. So they've been talking down their own giant achievements in favor of other more theoretical, hypothetical giant achievements, which were never achievable and failed subsequently. So they've got, they've got no one to blame but themselves for setting the table in a way that they couldn't they couldn't meet their own the own expectations that they were setting for themselves and it's inexplicable because they knew the trap they were walking into because they talked about it constantly they talked about in the overpromise under deliver strategy on background maybe not on record i don't recall on record or otherwise but there were i remember reading quotes from senior administration officials about the strategy and it was to um a, as a shift from the trump years to avoid superlatives to avoid um, you know, uh, pronouncements of history making achievements that neither uh, that don't make history and aren't achievements. Uh, so they wanted to do something different and beat expectations. And they did the exact opposite throughout the administration. And now all of a sudden they're saying, well, now we need to go small as though everybody's going to forget the last 18 months. I mean, you got to do something. You can't just sit there and do nothing while the world, you know, craters around you. So, you know, what would be a something that they could do that could make a huge difference? They could commit. There are two strategies to which they could commit, one of which is they could go all in on Ukraine, by which I don't mean no fly zone. I don't mean I mean, Biden says we will not allow Russia to win this war. We are going to do everything that we can to help the Ukrainians succeed in this, you know, epic generational struggle for for freedom and sovereignty in the world order right uh instead he releases 800 million dollars in new equipment right did that yesterday or the day before yesterday in a press release did he get up a speech did he say we're committing to ukraine the only thing we know about him is he's walking around saying putin's a war criminal and this is a genocide which is we can debate the wisdom or lack of wisdom therein but <coughs> Sorry. Um, but he's not saying, here's what we are doing practically to help the Ukrainians. And in that Quinnipiac poll, which is, a again, a, a bad poll for him, right? So maybe it's a little more extreme on this than others. Vast majorities of independents, Republicans, and Democrats want the United States to do more in Ukraine. And he is doing more in Ukraine. Why isn't that the story? That he's telling and why doesn't he look at those numbers and say this is a good thing this is political it's not only a good thing for the world this would be a good thing for me i mean it'll piss sorab off but it'll be okay for everybody else well, 75 I mean, percent of, of the country is- want us to do more on ukraine and he isn't he isn't embracing that it is a, as, a, as a public relations strategy yeah it's inexplicable and, except insofar as the fringes that have captured both parties are against it. The fringes that occupy the 25% of or whatever of the progressive or Democratic and Republicans who are against don't view this as a moral imperative. That poll said it was a moral imperative for the United States to support Ukraine in more material ways. They, the fringes occupy those, the, the not a moral imperative thing. So, and this White House tends to play to that. Another one though, maybe under, maybe I'm overthinking it, but so they're, they're sending a lot of heavy artillery to Ukraine, which is very valuable, some other heavy equipment and attack helicopters. Great, right? Well, the, the attack helicopters are only on offer because they were destined for Afghanistan. <laughs> so maybe uh. you don't want, it's grimly poetic, but maybe you don't want to mm, highlight that one too much. I do think that there is this obsessive quality to, to the nature of the PR strategy that is outlined in this AP piece, which is, that it's all small bore efforts to deal with a problem that cannot be resolved in the near term, though they desperately want it to be solved in the near term, which is inflation, right? That is, and inflation, you know, has gone up to 8% annually year to year, and it's not going to go down to 3% in a couple of months. That's not the way inflation, you know, we've talked about this a lot. The mechanics of inflation make its lowering very difficult over time. But that's what they know everybody is worried about, inflation, right? So they want to say, we're doing this and that and the other thing to help with inflation. Well, you know what? If you can't succeed there and you can't, 
I mean, you could maybe it'll go down a percent or two, which would be fantastic, by the way, relative to the problem. Um, but you actually have popular issue, have this Ukraine crisis, American involvement in which is a popular issue. And they want to drive trucks in front of the White House rather than having Biden give a speech to the American people about what we're doing to help the Ukrainians. No, you're, you seem to be I, shaking I just, your head. You're, you're, yeah, I just okay. haven't the slightest idea what... Yeah. I, I, I don't thinking. understand it except to say that when they sit down at the White House to talk about what to do, 90% of the conversation is about domestic policy because that, that's policy. what and when it comes to ukraine downsides i mean they're probably always thinking about because the conventional wisdom before we started talking in this podcast i was bringing this up is the conventional wisdom about this conflict has been uniquely wrong extremely terrible from day one and conventional wisdom probably dominates the conversation in the oval office and conventional wisdom ahead of this invasion was russia was never going to invade it was a big bluff then the conventional wisdom was well russia is going to take kiev sometime eventually a week they have to. a week no first and it was first it was a week first it was it was a week and then it was a month and then it was eventually because they can't not but they're not going to it's not going to happen so now the conventional wisdom is well this conflict's going to go on for 10 years and russia's going to commit all its forces to eastern ukraine and it's going to be a very long bloody conflict and eventually uh, half the country is going to be shaved off it's going to be integrated into russia so we should hedge our bets that conventional wisdom is probably wrong just like all the other conventional wisdom was probably wrong. And it's likely that we should we should push some chips in here, which the administration is doing to its credit. Good for them. But the, the what Ukraine is now asking for is isn't anti-tank weapons, no more javelins, no more in-laws. What they need is long range artillery, long range rockets, tanks, armored personnel carriers, helicopters. They want to engage in a set piece conventional battle against Russian forces in the east. And Russia has lost, according to Western estimates, one fifth of their armed personnel and heavy equipment, fully 20% of their forces have been routed and are inoperative. That's the goal that they've set for themselves in Kyiv is not unattainable. I, I, would, I, I would also say that on the messaging part, even, even when there's a clear, as you say, John, there's a clear message that the American people would resonate with with regard to Ukraine and the polls show that. This administration also seems to have a communication problem within defense, state, and the White House are never on the same page at any particular moment, right? And so Biden says something emotional and he gives some emotional outburst about Ukraine somebody has to walk it back. And then, you know, when, when state or defense is asked about it, they have to sort of massage what, what the narrative is. It's almost as if there's a lack of coordination and communication on these very serious policy issues so that, you know, that actually leads to confusion in terms of the story they want to tell the American people. I'll say this too. I think they're afraid of public sentiment. Public sentiment is very pro-engagement in Ukraine to a degree that I think uh, professionals in the international uh, relations sphere are terrified of. And they're afraid that public sentiment might drag the country into something that's inextricable and possibly disastrous. I think they're, the, I think but, they're scared of the public. But the president is only exacerbating that. He's, as John said, he's walking around saying right. that, that Putin has committed genocide and, and, and war crimes. But not acting what like I mean, if he's, if he's so interested in sort of throwing scraps at, at, at uh, citizens in other areas, I mean, the, the truck thing kind of reminds me, this isn't new necessarily. It reminds me of in the run up to Christmas when we were all talking about the supply chain problems. He had these two California ports, you know, uh, operate 24 hours a day. It's a kind of a it's a it's a kind of a, a similar sort of symbolic small ball, you know, approach. But if he's willing to sort of throw these scraps at other issues, why not at least try to pacify public opinion by by talking up what he's doing on on, on Ukraine here. I mean, I, I, no, I, I think what Noah's saying is is almost inarguable that there is a that there is a deep uh, pressure inside the uh, foreign policy, the liberal foreign policy establishmentarians at state and at defense and probably at the National Security Council that that are saying, uh, you know, uh, the public is fickle. You know, they were all behind Iraq and look what happened in Iraq. They were all behind this and look what happened to this. And uh, look, I mean, uh, 
I, we, when the war broke out on, on this, but we were very pessimistic, right? We were not, we were, it's like, I just don't, we just don't understand how Russia can't basically succeed in its war aims one way or another. We were and only Russia as good as use, our inputs. And our right, and that also, animus. yeah, right. But it was also like, look, Russia's much bigger. It's much, it's got a lot more money. It's got a lot more weaponry and it is ruthless and savage and they will do, and their, their, their military planning involves the use of brutality as a weapon of war and they will go brutal. And they have in fact, as we know, gone un unbelievably brutal. Um, I, I think what we didn't appreciate was how incompetent they would be, which is a very important input, right? And I, maybe there's no way of knowing it until it happens. But uh, liberal establishment has been spending five, six years talking up the idea that Russia is a marionetteer controlling American public opinion through its vast Svengali-like use of social media and getting Trump elected and having this and you know people saying things at secret meetings with George Papadopoulos and, and Carter Page and all of that. And the, and, and also- January 6th. And then also, you know, this notion that we better not engage them because, you know, they could, uh, they could electromagnetic pulse us, you know, they could really, they could do something to us. If we really got involved in, you know, they could, they could come here with their evil machinations and their hypersonic, oh, they're testing hypersonic missiles and all of that stuff. And part of this has been a kind of construction of a boogeyman of a competent, relentless focused boogeyman that is pulling the strings and controlling America from inside, you know, a closet. And guess what? It's probably really totally not true. Given what we have seen in the last six weeks, that country could no more get Trump elected than it could take Kiev, which is a, which not that the two are, intimately connected but it takes a lot a lot of extreme competence to pull off maneuvers like this and guess what they stink they don't stink at making people think that they control the levers of power and they certainly control the levers of power within their own ambit um but i think that's part of it is that is that Liberals and the left scared themselves senseless about how Russia, you know, has these superpowers and that we better protect ourselves from their wrath because they already screwed up our democracy. And now they're going to now who knows what they could do to us. And maybe we didn't have that. So so in that sense, or them. Uh, there's mm -hmm. also the, there's a the, you know people who have been been confused by Russian military doctrine here because you know they weren't following the playbook as we understood it and pretty much and then they started to once they encountered obstacles along the Blitzkrieg War but the last uh, cog in the machine that hasn't really been deployed yet is some um, strategic bombing with unguided munitions haven't done that yet for lack of a better term carpet bombing and that's the sort of thing that we you hear is the last resort. And it's the sort of thing that I, I bet you war planners in the West don't want to bring about with their own actions as a retaliatory response. Well, of course not. I mean, and, uh, you know, the thing about carpet bombing is that it, uh, it doesn't doesn't work except as a tool of revenge. I mean, you carpet bomb war. Dresden, you carpet bomb Dresden as a response, as the response two and a half years later. Uh, to the blitz right i mean that's why we did dresden but we didn't do dresden because we had a strategic goal in dresden it was you are not going to kill forty-two thousand britons and destroy our capital city and go through this war without a commensurate response we are going to level your little beautiful you know uh, toy beautiful city um in response but that wasn't a that wasn't a strategic aim right uh unless you yeah it was it was it was something else it was an emotional aim and carpet bombing doesn't work uh and carpet bombing certainly wouldn't work certainly wouldn't work if mariupol isn't working to break the ukrainian will carpet bombing won't work i don't know what i think i mean go ahead sorry i, I think all this is getting at a, at a crucial general point about about Biden, the, the administration's 
reticence here regarding uh, Ukraine, which is that in foreign policy and in wars, especially foreign wars, if you make an assertion such as we will not allow Russia to win this war, and then you back up that assertion with policy, it is so hard to control outcomes. Um, and that is the very opposite of, the, of what the administration wants and what it's doing. It's very easy to stage stunts and uh, choreograph these sort of small events and little announcements. A foreign war that, that we are involved in indirectly spins wildly out of the administration's control and, and they, they, don't want, they don't want any piece of that, whether it has to do with carpet bombing, escalation in Putin's eyes, whatever it is. Um, so, uh, undergirding the war in Ukraine and our involvement in the West involvement is an understanding that Ukraine wishes is, and wishes to be more firmly knitted into the West. And what is the West? The West is sanctity of contract, uh, rule of law, uh, and economic and personal liberty. And to understand how all those work together, I commend to you David Bonson's book, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Our friend David Bonson, who runs the Bonson Group with $3.5 billion under management, uh, knows whereof he speaks as a money manager and investor. And he uh, has compiled a 250 great quotes and uh, factoids and, uh, and observations um, about uh, ordered liberty and economic freedom uh, uh, as a sort of day-to-day -day, uh, primer. And with, uh, with those quotes and then his analysis, um, it really does give you a sense of the stakes uh, of Western civilization and what we throw away when we, when we stop focusing on ordered liberty and economic freedom and start imagining that there are other ways to do these things that, um, that, that, that don't work and that uh, limit, our, limit our freedom uh, and limit uh, order and uh, throw us into chaos. So that's David Bonson's there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Get it at Amazon, get it at Barnes & Noble, get it wherever you get your fine books. Uh, you will thank me for that. And when you get it, you know where you should read it. You know where you should sit down, plop yourself down, and read that, read that David Bonson book. It's in your X chair. You know it. The X chair with that patented dynamic variable lumbar, which supports your lower back like no other chair has ever supported your lower back. You put it where you need it and you can sit there for hours. If your chair, if you're in a room that's too cold, you can use the LMX temperature regulation in the chair to warm yourself up. If you're hot, it can cool you down. That's that LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X chair. That's high performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort, the X chair, try it for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair shall be, you'll never go back, I promise. So go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Um, can I, can I have, add one more yeah, data? Please. I was going to add more. one more yeah, data go. point in the Biden narrative confusion department because we obviously, we I think we mentioned this the other day, but they have in fact extended the federal mask mandate on airplanes and mass transit for two more weeks. Completely ridiculous, makes no, 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 no sense. 15 days. Oh, sorry, 15 days, which, which is, is not a great number joke. because we're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to stop the spread. It's the first 500 days. That are the hardest but um yeah so this is like something that that makes again makes no sense most people are ready for that to be a voluntary thing there's not, most people have no problem if someone wants to wear a mask on an airplane but the compulsory nature of this at a time when this is now an endemic thing where you vaccination is widely available makes no political sense um so uh, talking about this for the last week about the severing of the case numbers, which are the reason that we are, uh, they're continuing with the mask mandate, that is rising case numbers. And the severing of case numbers from the, uh, from the results of sickness, meaning hospitalizations and deaths. Because as case numbers are rising, hospitalizations and deaths continue to fall. Therefore, 
what we have here is a disease or a sickness uh, that is less and less likely to land you in the emergency room in a hospital in an ICU numbers also falling and or 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 to, or to kill you um, that severing is what we want that is what the flu is that is what any that is what any sort of you know bad thing that passes through a population can do uh, you're obviously going to get enormously large numbers of people who get a flu during a flu season who don't go to the hospital, don't go to the ICU, and don't die from it. Um, the refusal of the public health establishment to accept that this has happened. Uh, they, this is what epidemiology is supposed to be, right? Case numbers go up, so people are getting it, but people are getting are less and less likely to get sick from it and less and less likely to be hospitalized and less and less likely to die. And that means it is a, the disease has transformed itself into something else and they don't want it to be the case. I mean, it is a, they are clinging, gripping with their fingernails as they hang from Harold Lloyd's clock over, over downtown Los Angeles, clinging to this regime. It is on the one hand, madness, and on the other hand, it is like a last gasp. It's like, you know, if you have a Grateful Dead cover band that has now gone into the sixth hour of its riffing on, you know, riding the train high on cocaine, and they won't, and they've locked the doors and they won't let anybody out of the club because they, they're going to do this until they can, you know, until they can, their own fingers are, are bloody and raw. Like it is, uh, you know, they. I mean, it is a kind of. Um, I'm not quite sure. I know an, an analog or a so. What was the what was the political logic? Because there was no epidemiological logic. What was the political logic for lifting mask mandates <clears throat> in mid February when we were averaging 200,000 new cases a day, and now maintaining this transportation mandate when we were averaging seven three thousand new cases over the course of a week? Um, it was because you had to do it then. Because if you didn't do it then. It didn't matter whether you did it at all as a political narrative, it would be baked in the cake. You'd have primary campaigns, people would be establishing messages around this, buying spots around this, making promises around this. If it's a primary issue, it's a general election issue, and it doesn't go away. So if you didn't do it in the, in the very early spring, late winter, you might as well not do it at all. Well, guess what? It's late spring, mid-spring. Primary campaign well underway. Votes are going to be cast in a month's time. This is an issue now. Masking is going to be an issue now in the general. Can't make it go away anymore. Congratulations. You have it. Now we're going to have another referendum on COVID, on the COVID regime, whether it's present or not. And it was always present as background radiation, even when the mask mandates went away. We were talking about this the other day with this Wall Street Journal profile of this New Jersey voter who found herself in the arms of the Republican Party against all her, all her best instincts and impulses. Um, but now it's just going to be a much more resonant issue, and it's one that cuts against Democrats, and they know it, but they are captured by an ideologically unrepresentative pressure group. There's no way around it. They are hostages. I don't even know if it's ideological by now. I mean, the question is, the CDC is making this judgment, and the, and the, the White House is caught between a rock and a hard place, because what it should have said was, <clears throat> uh, shut up. Shut up and go away. Gail Walensky, you're fired. But uh, Rochelle Walensky, you're fired. Uh, we're listening to Ashish Jha. Go I'm away. Say it is ideological. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you briefly, but the people who are applauding this narrative are all on one side of the aisle. Right. And they're at the very right. far end of that spectrum. Okay. I think that the incentives that are guiding the CDC are the incentives of their field. That is that uh, Rochelle Walensky is more afraid of of four years from now going to a conference and being and being assailed by the uh public health director of you know uh waukesha county on how she so irresponsibly lifted the mask mandates that's what scares her not november 2022 not the congress yelling at her she is scared of them she's scared of she the question is who's when you do something like this, who, who, wh what master are you serving? And I don't mean the public opinion that likes masking forever. I mean specific constituencies 
and the specific constituencies now are within the field itself. Because it's not clear to me, even though, you know, I know Randy Weingarten is a, is a, is a great v- villain of the last few years, but I, I don't see that she's the one who's putting pressure on to keep masks on planes. Like, that's not who wants, who's the pressure group that says keep masks on planes where air circulates every three seconds and in which we have literally in the last two years not had a single documented super spreader event from a plane. There has not been a single super spreader event from a plane. We've had them in restaurants. We've had them at weddings. We've had them at parties where you're in a closed room. We've had them in multi-generational apartments, right, where people, air isn't circulating, but never on a plane. So whose interest is this? The public health community's interest, and that is it. Nobody else is left. I think uh, Rochelle Walensky is perhaps characterologically a catastrophist. Do you remember? It was over a year ago that she gave this emotional speech saying that she sees uh, doom on the horizon um, in the in the upcoming waves. In the context um, of her kids going to summer camp, I think. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, I mean, so I, I it's it, this is real for the people involved. And I think there's also an element that's not dissimilar to um, the dynamic that we were talking about with with the with the administration in Ukraine, they they are so fearful that it will get out of their con, out of their control that that their predictions will be upended um, and they'll be exposed as having not known what's going on. So they're vigilant about uh, erring on the side of insane caution. That's probably a real motivating factor that they feel like they got burned by the summer of freedom, <laughs> even though they burnt themselves, they could have just stuck with it. Um, but do you remember when Walensky was you know, just appointed? She was very prominent, obviously, in the early days of the, of the Biden administration. And she went out against the teachers union initiative. Um, I think it was vaccination mandates. And then she was compelled to walk it back mm-hmm. because of the pressure group, because they're captured by an ideologically unrepresentative pressure group. She knows where her bread is buttered. Right, but I'm saying, but I'm saying, if you look at this very specific decision, this is now like a rear guard action for masking, right? It's some kind of symbolic rear guard action for masking. Who's for masking? I'm saying, as a you're talking about rear guard pressure group, who is the pressure group for masking now? I'm saying not a group. I'm, I, there is a body of opinion, you know, as you, 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 as you. Far left progressive, we have all the information not, in the world suggests this is the constituency this administration plays to in every possible way. Why wouldn't they put but, them here? But they are not they are not an interest group in the way that the National Education Association is an interest group, right? That represents, you know, mi- millions of teachers who do a lot of fundraising for the Democratic Party and have their tentacles and tendrils in every level of government, local, they are, state, they, federal. They, but they are, I think Noah's right, that they actually are, it's not a formal interest group, but the fact that all of the major airline CEOs wrote to Bi- the Biden administration weeks ago, begging for the lifting of this mass mandate, saying everywhere else in this country, we are lifting these mandates. Here are all the reasons why we should do it on planes. It's causing a lot of uh, a lot of headaches for our staff, for our pilots, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that that, which is a real interest group, I mean, these people have, a the, they control an entire industry. He ignored that because I really do believe they still want to give, they want to be able to point to one thing that they are doing to satisfy the irrational demands, many of them on far left Twitter, of people who will, as one you know, left-leaning comedian said the other day, will go around and, I will not use the word, but B-slap anyone he sees on the street who is wearing a mask, who isn't wearing a mask. Like, this is the attitude. I, I mean, you still see it among some parents, some really vigilant parents at schools, at preschools in particular, where they don't want to take the mask off the kids. There is still a constituent, a fear-based constituency for, for masking, and they're very loud and they're very obnoxious. Sean Patrick Maloney, who runs the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, said Two months ago, he never wanted to see another mask or something like that. He is the guy who was sitting there raising the money and looking at the data and looking at the looking at the tsunami that is coming toward him and trying to figure out whether there's any way to, you know, put a tarp over a few people to save them, you know, from the, you know, from the from the flood. Um, so he is less powerful in this context than what? 
then Barbara Ferrer of LA, then the then the mayor of Philadelphia. I mean, it's a very interesting situation because uh, anybody who is looking at a very a specific reckoning from specific, uh, you know, where where they're going to be measured and they're going to have an outcome come at them personally is running the hell in the other direction. Did you hear, did you see anybody on Twitter yesterday uh, who was an elected official of either party coming out and saying, I commend the CDC for keeping the mask mandate on planes? Now, I mean, I don't even know if a, if a you know, if a communist member of Congress would want to say that, like, you know, un, un, unprompted. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, let's say it's 15 days and that's finally where, so it doesn't matter that much, like, two weeks more one way or the other what's the what's the big deal it's just more a reflection of a kind of mindset and this is where this um the complete disconnect between uh this administration and its um understanding of its role today is, just now yeah go ahead just yeah. now white yeah. house chief of staff ron Klain tweeting out a new york times piece because he lives on twitter quoting they're reporting that covid cases are going up by 3,000 over seven days in a country of 330 million. But ICU admissions are down for the first time in the pandemic. Hospital admissions are below 15,000 for the first time in the pandemic. We're winning. What the hell is this messaging? It is always a scapegoat to blame the messaging, right? But this messaging is insane. They are trying to have it both ways. At the same, at once, COVID hospitalization are down, the economy is booming, we're back, but also, the state of emergency needs to exist in perpetuity because it's dangerous out there. You can't have it both ways. CDC works for the White House. CDC is not an independent agency that does not have a you know, political component. Once he's appointed by the White House, every figure in the public health establishment, uh, in the federal government, uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who are who are civil service employees, including, by the way, Anthony Fauci. But uh, you know, in leadership positions and all of that, those are political jobs. And R- Ron Klain cannot have it both ways. If he is tweeting out that things are getting better, he goes to the CDC and says, I overruled you in the name of Joe Biden. You're saying that this mask mandate is going on for 15 more days. No, it's not. No, it's not. You are not, you do not get to have that say over a major American industry and the, one of the ways in which people in this country go around, do their business. You are not, you are, there is more danger from people erupting on planes and punching each other out than there is from COVID. Have you seen that Fauci's back now too? I mean, he was, oh, he was like on Andrea Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But now he's doing the media rounds. Well, you know, I think it's prudent and maybe, maybe masking should get back if we hit a certain arbitrary case rate. If you thought Republican enthusiasm for November had plateaued, just wait. Just wait until this guy becomes another, gets another round of media attention. Look, Dan Senor, our friend who uh, was on our podcast last week in Palm Beach and who sees a lot of uh, data that the rest of us don't see uh, in terms of, um, you know, like what, what, what stuff is being uh, collected uh, behind the scenes in politics says. There, the, the Republican enthusiasm to vote in November is at levels that nobody has ever seen. And that includes, by the way, 2010, uh, which was, of course, a year in which 63 House seats turned hands in which Republicans got a chance to vote against the Obama stimulus, uh, the partial ho- nationalization of the auto industry, Dodd-Frank, and Obamacare. And these numbers are higher because people have, you know, all of those effects that we hadn't even felt those effects in 2010. They were all perspective. That is, you know, what the effect of Obamacare was going to be in Dodd-Frank and all of that. We have just been through two years of COVID. Um, and Biden came in in the middle to fix COVID and it got worse. Got worse. I mean, by any independent measure, Biden came in with vac- vaccinations and the death toll is, uh, you know, significantly higher uh, over his presidency than than the death than the death toll was over Trump's. So I'm not blaming him. I don't think it's his fault. I think basically that uh, what we there was a, a steep learning curve, and the learning curve was um, 
that precisely this idea that you know you don't want to get into into things that you can't control it turns out that absent the vaccines which one one of the great things that have ever happened there is no controlling covid we, this is this was hubris this was some effort you know it was like uh you know, it was like building building a dam that was ten feet lower than 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 the water line was going to be. Everything that we have done to mitigate the effects of COVID once the vaccines came in is unnecessary or worse because it has had ancillary horrible consequences. We invented the mitigating strategy, right? It's a shot. It's a shot. It's two shots. It's three shots. That's the mitigation. Everything else is crap. Masking, social distancing, I don't care what it is. It's crap. And everybody understands this kind I'm not everybody. In fact, most people don't understand. A lot of people don't. 50% of people say they still support masking, right? But um Biden uh so Republicans are the ones who have decided that this is crap and they are going to make people pay who have said it isn't. It's that simple. You know? Um, and, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis has raised $102 million for, for some reason for his gubernatorial campaign. And we, we are, it's, you know, expression of, unfortunately, an admission of, of class that when we talk about masking and transportation, we talk about planes. That's not who experiences this mostly. It's commuters, commuters on buses and trains. That's the vast majority of the people who are subject to this, to say nothing of people, if you live in a city, you know, toddlers. Those are the people who have to mask still. And if you live in Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs, <clears throat> and it's coming back a little bit, but we're talking about, you know, working class, middle class, upper middle class, people who are experienced this heavy handed um, dictate far more than the moneyed classes and certainly far more than people on Twitter, which is where this discourse happens, which is where Ron Klain lives. 23% of American adults are on Twitter. They are disproportionately uh, high earners. They're disproportionately white. They're disproportionately well-educated. In other words, they're Democrats. That's the feedback mechanism. That's the feedback loop. And you won't hear from the 70% of Americans who aren't expressing themselves on a minute by minute basis on social media, who are really put off by this and perturbed by it and don't okay. see it as anything other than hypocritical and nonsensical. Okay. So you've gone to Twitter. So we got to conclude with the news that Elon Musk has offered $44 billion for Twitter. He has made a flat offer of 43 point something billion having full on bear hug. Right. But real, having real, having real having secured takeover. yeah, well having secured 14% of Twitter stock or something like that. And then they were like, "Oh, come on the board." And then he's like, <laughs> "Great." And then over the weekend he's like, "Maybe there should be a like button. Do you want an edit button?" Well, he's going, there are limits there. to I'm stock looking. purchases. If you're on the board, you're limited by how much stock you can That's buy. Right. He's got a right. to their head now. He says, I'm going to buy it for more than your stock price. Stock price is rising. And now he says, you know, take it or leave it. And if they leave it, all your paper money goes away. Yeah, it's fascinating. And and but but to speak of the comedy of Twitter, the the pretentious comedy of pretentious users of Twitter, um, uh, of course, you know, for some reason, everybody, everybody now, I, I keep saying it's the conundrum of Elon Musk that the uh, chattering classes now hate Elon Musk, uh, even though he is the he is the world's most successful creator of the of the thing that is supposed to save us from global warming. Right. The electric car like, should you know, he but they hate him and. Uh, it's all very unclear. I mean, to me, what what's going on? But so uh, the news that Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter has created a firestorm on Twitter of Twitter users who are like who are outraged at the thought that he might own Twitter. And my favorite is America's stupidest foreign policy wise man, a moron from you know Moronistan. You know, the mayor of Helm, David Rothkopf, um, whose uh, who's, who's ignominious career as a pundit and editor and thinker, uh, have now been capped by his tweet this morning that reads as follows. We are the assets of Twitter. Uh, hold on a second. We are the assets of Twitter. If we walk out ETS. the door, <laughs> the moment Elon Musk takes it over, 
It is nothing. And I can tell you, I, for one, have no desire to participate in the social engineering experiment of that particular out-of-control megalomaniac. Okay? So, David Rothkopf is going to walk out the door. Oh, my God. But look, they are Twitter. This always happens with the, with the left has loves their messiahs and then immediately turns them into antichrist when they say something that isn't part of the messaging that they want. Like if they defend free speech, then they become and that's Elon Musk. The threat of Elon Musk to left leaning Twitter is that he's actually going to allow he's not going to suppress stories. He's going to allow people to, to have more of a freewheeling discussion. And then they might say something that is, you know, uh, violent word. I mean, not not real violent threats, but those are actually still often allowed on Twitter as long as they're directed at Jews, then he, then nobody takes them off Twitter. But he's going to actually perhaps allow for freewheeling platform debate. And that terrifies them. He's going to let Trump back on Twitter. Yeah, that's the main thing. <laughs> that's basically the main. The I main would thing. just I would just like to say this, which is if Elon Musk doesn't say, don't let the door hit you on the way out, I will think less of him. I mean, the idea of a Twitter in which David Rothkoff storms off to create his own truth social or gab or whatever. We're going to start our own Twitter free from the effects of Elon Musk. Well, you know what? Go So go to Instagram, you idiot. Like who gives a shit like that? It is fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating to watch the, um, sort of like the chattering class express its outrage over the idea that they should experience any discomfort whatsoever, including in the ideological discomfort of maybe participating in a medium that is owned by somebody whose ideological priors are not their own. Well, welcome to the club, David Rothkoff. Every one of us has been watching movies made by people whose politics we revile, have been reading books published by companies whose politics we revile. That is part of being a grown-up and being able to separate your own participation in things from the larger order of things. And I really am delighted to see, uh, I mean, the more of this that can happen where people are forced to confront, you know, not have their outrage, sort of like, have their outrage machine challenged is um, is is something that is devoutly to be to be wished in, in my view. I don't mean to focus on David Rothkoff, although he is a he is a particularly malignant, you know, putz. So I, I I'm I'm happy to to create you know to be to be uh, incredibly unpleasant to him uh, today. But uh, but he's really an example. Not the he's not the the cause of of the entire thing. There are others. Um, and including uh, former friends of ours who are saying much the same thing today, and uh, and and uh, will 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 continue to to do so. So um, so uh, we'll just uh, get the popcorn and 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 watch. Um, I mean, it, of course, what's interesting about Twitter and Instagram and and Facebook and all of that is is the fact that um, uh, we are we are long since due. I mean, maybe TikTok came in and that was the, the but we're long since due. For something that was supposed to supersede them, right? I mean, that that is that is the interesting thing about the slowdown in tech, is that you know Facebook came along in two thousand seven, it it supplanted MySpace, you know Twitter came along in two thousand nine, it kind of killed the blog, uh, Instagram came along, you know this way, and 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 theoretically something new should be happening. So that is that really would, interesting. That, because that Silicon Valley mentality is, you know, move fast, break things, disrupt industries, right? And the Silicon Valley's, you know, especially these media platforms have become a sclerotic industry in desperate need of disruption. Except for Substack, right? So which is why the New York Times yesterday, Substack comes along, says here, publish anything here and we'll take we'll take a 20 percent uh, cut and uh, and uh, and, uh, you know, the people who b- do the billing, they'll take they'll take 10 percent. You keep 70 or 70, whatever the number is publish whatever you want, no advertising, you know, let's, let's see how this goes. And the New York times publishes a hit piece yesterday that says, Oh, Substack is going through growing pains. Very so, so, Oh, such growing pains. It's really terrible. And then the piece, which is like 3000 words, uh, uh, elucidates not a single growing pain. There is liter- literally not a single growing pain, except that somebody is mad that white people are getting advances from Substack. 
somebody quit Substack because she heard that some white writers got advances from Substack to move their to move their blogs onto Substack. White people. I don't know how that functions as a growing pain for the most successful uh, media, quiet media launch of the last 20 years, which Substack is, but, um, but, but there you have it. So Substack is one of those things that is uh, breaking things and disrupting things by putting the power in the hands of the individual brand of person rather than needing that everybody needing to be fed through a larger, uh, a larger um, institution that uh, provides them with, uh, uh, you know, not only a support structure and health insurance and whatever, but also sort of like an enhanced brand by having, by sharing the prestige of something uh, already uh, extant. But um, that, that, that's a big thing. Anyway, this, this should be fun. Uh, Elon Musk is fun. Whatever you want to say about him. He's pretty fun. Uh, and this is fun. Um, I will not be here tomorrow as I will be traveling for, uh, for, for, for the Passover holiday. Uh, so uh, my, my colleagues will, will be, be here with, uh, with our friend Eli Lake. And uh, I'll be back on Monday. But, for, but until tomorrow, for the crew from tomorrow, uh, Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.